the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. See, when God came down on that mountain and he spoke the Ten Commandments, Israel realized they couldn't do it. So they sent Moses, go work out the details. We can't do this. But what would have happened differently if Israel fell on their face and said, God, we can't do this. In fact, we've already violated all of your Ten Commands. But we do want to know you. We don't want anything to come between us. We need a better deal than this. I can assure you, if they'd come with that heart, that God would have shown mercy. Because he always shows mercy when we come in humble faith. Always. See, the deal that Jesus and the Father worked out together was a promise. A promise that lasted forever and that couldn't fail because it's not dependent upon us. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. The Israelites had been in captivity for hundreds of years after the death of Joseph. God raised up Moses to lead the Israelites out of their enslavement into the land that was promised to their forefathers. The plagues were sent, and finally Israel was free. God was now revealing His nature to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. He gave them ten commandments for them to see His holiness, but the people were afraid of drawing closer to God. We will look at this mediation between the children of Israel and God and compare this with how Jesus is a better mediator between us and God in Hebrews chapter 8. For now, we join Pastor Will back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. Now, verse 26 says, You also are not going to make steps unto mine altar, that your nakedness be not discovered thereon. The word nakedness there means the genitals. Now, you have to realize they didn't quite wear clothes the same way we did. There were no skinny robes, okay? They didn't have skinny robes or mom robes or anything like that. You know, it didn't work that way. You had robes, and if you were going to go around in, in activity, you would actually take those robes and you would kind of pick them up and you'd stuff them into the, the sash or the belt that you wore so that the robes wouldn't be dragging around everywhere. That obviously created, I'll just let you figure it out. So the Lord says, I don't want you walking up onto the top through steps to the altar because that's going to be embarrassing. That's not the way this is supposed to be. I've designed you not to show off those parts of your body. In other words, you know, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and every temple has an altar. And one of the questions I would ask is, what kind am I placing my body on? One that I've sculpted with my hands? It has to be perfect, chiseled in every such way. You can obviously tell I haven't done that. When we look at that and we say, okay, why? Like sometimes people ask me questions and say, you know, well, you know, is it okay for me to do this? Oh, is it okay for women to wear makeup? Is it okay for a guy to wear this? Is it okay for, and I, I just ask the question, I say, okay, well, what is, what is your goal in asking me this question? 
are you doing it because, you know, you're trying to attract attention or you're doing it just because, you know, you're trying to stay healthy or you're doing this because, well, you know, I like the way mascara looks on me and I think it looks pretty or you're doing it because you don't want anybody else to think that you look, you know, dumpy or whatever. Those questions are really at the heart of why someone would do any of those things. If I all of a sudden got really buff and healthy, buff and everything because I want to be healthy and I want to be handsome for my wife, then that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing, I hope. But if I do it because I want to impress people and make them look at me and see how special I think I am or whatever, well, then that would be wrong. Do you see where I'm going with this? The idea is that our body is a temple of the Lord. And, and so, you know, how do we recognize the fact that it's his? And am I doing that because what I want to, I want to give you my best. And if that's the case, then... Man, pump the iron. Ladies, if, you know, if, if you're doing that because you think, well, my husband likes mascara, and I, or I, like, a lot of times I say, well, people say, what do you think about this? And I say, what do you think? Do you think you look pretty in it? Does it do you like it? Does it make you feel comfortable? Well, yeah. I say, well, go for it. I don't like the shoes, but that's okay. I don't like any shoes. Now, more specifically, I think what the Lord's trying to say here in regards to modesty, the Bible has a lot to say about not exposing the human body in, a dif- in an indecent manner. You know, I hear a lot of people say that modesty is what they decide it to be. I get very uncomfortable when I see some of the comments, and mostly by the ladies, I will just be honest with you, about how no one should tell them what to wear. No one should, it doesn't matter what they wear. You know, if anyone has a problem with what you wear, they're a pervert. Listen, if someone is having unclean thoughts about you, they are a pervert or they are having their own problems. I get it. That is their sin, and that is something they need to deal with it. That's not your fault. But the Bible does tell us not to adorn ourselves in such a way that we draw attention to parts of us that are not supposed to be exposed to other people, okay? That, the Bible does say. And so to say that modesty is what you decide it to be, you will find no biblical support for that. There are parts of you that are meant to stay out of the sight of others. And dressing in a way, male or female, that exposes those parts goes very much against the heart of God. So much so here that he says, don't make any steps on my altar because I don't want anybody seeing stuff that they have no business seeing. And that's the question that you need to ask yourself when you're going to decide how are you going to dress in public? The question you need to ask yourself is, am I showing off stuff that people have no business seeing? And if that's the case, then cover up in some way. A lot of times I, I hear moms, they get really mad because dad says, I don't really think you should go out in that to their daughter. And mom says, what's your problem? Let me tell you something right now, moms. You should not be the one deciding what your daughter wears when she goes out. I'm just telling you. That should be something that dad decides. Because he knows what goes on in this mind. All right? And he knows what is proper and what is not. That's the role that I think us, we as dads can play in our daughters' lives, protecting them from dumb kids who do stupid things and from not advertising things that should not be advertised. I was so impressed with my wife. She dressed modestly. It was one of the greatest attractions I had to her because she never, her heart and her desire was not to show off things that didn't need to be shown off, things that were to be saved for her future husband someday in only certain environments. And I was so grateful for that. You know, she showed self-respect in how she handled herself. Of course, this brings us to the end of chapter 20, and you think, well, we should be going right to chapter 21. When we get to chapter 21, and it would be natural for us to just jump right in. We got plenty of time. We could go right in. 21's got some interesting stuff, and we could begin to learn the nuts and bolts of the covenant between God and Israel. But here's the reality. We're going to spend 20, the next 20 chapters of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus, 
looking at all the nuts and bolts of God's covenant with Israel. And then after the failure of numbers, we're going to repeat it all over again in Deuteronomy. So we got plenty of time to cover all that. And when spending so much time in God's law, it can be easy to forget that we don't come to God by the law. It can be very easy to do that. We have a better covenant brokered by a better mediator. In fact, there's not even really a mediation in the new covenant. There's simply a promise. And so in light of that, before we dive into all these laws, we're going to spend a quite a bit of time over the next you know, few months. You know, I want to make sure we understand the new covenant before we look at the old covenant so we can always have that at the forefront of our mind. So if you would turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to spend some time in the book of Hebrews. Most of you probably know this, but for those of you that might not, I just want to share with you. Hebrews was written for the purpose of the fact that there were Jewish Christians who were suffering such severe persecution that they were considering leaving Christianity and going back to Judaism, going back to the sacrifices, back to the law, back to all those things. And the writer's goal of Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote it because he doesn't identify himself. There are lots of debates on that. I don't want to center our talk on that tonight. But the writer's goal is to persuade these struggling Jewish Christians that there's nothing to go back to in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was a shadow that pointed to Jesus. His deal is far better, even if it's led them to trials. And so, in chapter 8, verse 1, it's a good starting point because the writer says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. The word sum there means main point. So we want to kind of get our understanding of Hebrews kind of in a nutshell This is a good starting point, a good place to summarize everything the writer said. And this is his point. We have such a high priest, or we have this kind of a high priest. And then he begins to explain to us what kind of high priest we have. He says, first off, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So he's going to explain to us how Jesus is a superior high priest. And one of the reasons he is is because he's seated next to the Father in heaven. Now think about this for a moment. We're going to spend three to five chapters in Exodus and in another three to five chapters in Leviticus talking all about the priest preparation, the clothes they have to wear, and the rituals they had to perform before they could even begin to do their work. A lot of stuff. And you know what? Jesus needs none of that. None of that. He's sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. So no matter how interesting the priests in the Old Covenant might seem as we go through them, everything we're going to learn about that comes short of the position Jesus has as our great high priest. So keep that in mind. How else is Jesus superior? Well, verse 2. He is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. See, not only is Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, that makes him a better high priest, but he also serves in the real temple. You say, what do you mean real temple? Well, I thought there was a real temple on earth. Well, the word true here, the true sanctuary, true true tabernacle, means that which is real or actual. So, will that the temple in Jerusalem was a fake that David built and, you know, Solomon built that David planned and then later on that Zerubbabel built and later on Herod built? Were they fakes? No, there was an actual building called the temple in Jerusalem. But just because you can see something doesn't make it the real deal. In fact, when the writer wrote Hebrews, in just a decade, that temple would be gone, leveled to the ground, no stone upon another, just as Jesus prophesied. There'd be no more sacrifices, there'd be no more priests, and there hasn't been since that day. What you see with your own eyes might not necessarily be truth, because truth never changes. 
See, Jesus serves God in the real temple, the one in heaven where God sits on the throne. The earthly temple in Jerusalem was just a picture of that, just a depiction of that. It was not the real one. That's a good point. Because when we go back to the old covenant, we go back to legalism. And legalism, it's easier, isn't it? It's easier than having a relationship with Jesus. Legalism feels better because we can touch it. We can taste it. We can read down the laundry list of things that we've done and we say, I'm good with God. But just because you can touch and taste something doesn't make it legit. Beware any teaching that tries to put something between you and God except for Jesus. He is the mediator of our, of our covenant. And we don't need to go to a priest. We don't need to go to through a ritual. We come right to our Father through Jesus Christ. When on is only Jesus a better high priest because he's seated next to the Father and because he serves in the real temple, but because he brings a better offering. Verse 3. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts, multiple, and sacrifices, multiple. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. See, the high priest was commissioned to ensure man's offerings were done correctly and to mediate that relational transaction between God and man. If Jesus is to be our mediator, he has to have something to offer too. But see, Jesus doesn't offer multiple things. The Bible says he came into the holy of holies in heaven and he presented his own blood on the altar once for all. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to keep going to the priest. You don't have to keep bringing an animal to atone for your sins. You come to Jesus and he forgives you of all your sin once for all. Again, the temptation is to long for some visible sign that God accepts us. Or we've done something that now God sees us as clean because we've been baptized for the eighth time or we took communion this week or something we do to make us feel better about ourselves. But see, Jesus' offering is different. While it was accomplished on earth, he transacted it in heaven by offering his own blood to the Father for our sins. So he's not a priest like the old covenant ones. He's the substance of their shadow. Look at verse four. For if he were on earth, well then, he wouldn't be a priest. Seeing that there are already priests that offer gifts according to the law. We don't need another of those kind of priests. But look at what it says in verse five. It says, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. The word example means a copy, a representation, a figure. Shadow means the outline or the image cast by an object. Moses, he was told by God, do everything according to the pattern that I set to you. Why? Because it's supposed to be a copy, a representation. But it's only the image or the outline cast by the true object. It's not the actual object. There are those who declare that we have to go back to the Hebraic roots of the church, to which I ask, why? They don't give the full picture, only the outline. I don't want the shadow. I want Jesus. I don't want somebody to get between me and God. Get out of my way. Jesus made the way. I want Jesus. I want my Savior. So, as we study through Exodus and Leviticus and we learn about the tabernacle and its furniture, we're going to look for Jesus there. We're going to look how it points to Jesus, how it describes what Jesus will be like. And when we examine the priesthood, we're going to look for Jesus. If we find how Jesus is the substance of those shadows, then we will have correctly studied the Old Covenant. Verse 6, For now has he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. See, Jesus is a better high priest. He's the substance, not the shadow. And he is a better mediator. And we see that phrase, more excellent, better covenant, better promises. Why in the world would I want to go back to the old covenant when this is the deal Jesus got for me? Now, why is Jesus a better mediator? 
We'll turn left to Galatians chapter 3. Keep your finger in Hebrews because we're going to go back. And look at what verses 19 and 20 say. Wherefore then, or what purpose, serves the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained of, by angels in the hand of a mediator, Moses. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one. In other words, I don't, I mean, I guess you could try that, but you'd have to broker your deal with yourself. So that's not really how you do mediation. Mediation works between two people who are on opposite sides and they're fine a meeting place, right? So the mediator's job is to bring those two people together. So he says here, a mediation is not between one. But then he says, but God is one. But what's he trying to say? See, Israel chose a mediator between them and God. And while Moses was an awesome man, he did not get Israel the best deal because their deal was dependent upon them doing their part. That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 8 in our scripture reading, where it mentioned that God's problem wasn't with the deal, it was with them because they violated the deal. So Moses didn't get them the best deal because it was dependent upon them doing their part. And any deal dependent upon us doing something is going to fail because we're sinners. See, when God came down on that mountain and he spoke the Ten Commandments, Israel realized they couldn't do it. So they sent Moses, go work out the details. We can't do this. But what would have happened differently if Israel fell on their face and said, God, we can't do this. In fact, we've already violated all of your Ten Commands. But we do want to know you. We don't want anything to come between us. We need a better deal than this. I can assure you, if they'd come with that heart, that God would have shown mercy because he always shows mercy when we come in humble faith, always. So instead, God gave them a system that would cause them to realize they needed a savior. That's what this says here. It was given because of transgression to show them they needed a savior. And then 1,500 years later, that savior came. So the new covenant now is different than the old. It's a one-person deal, according to Galatians 3.20. It says, hey, the mediation normally is between two, but this deal, there's only one, just God. It's a deal between God and Jesus, which, by the way, is proof that Jesus is God. Because if there's only one God, and it mentions, but God is one, and the deal's between God and Jesus, then Jesus has to be God. This was a deal between God and not a deal between God and man. The new covenant is about not even a broker deal between God and man. Not even a broker deal between God and Jesus. The new covenant is a promise given to man because of what God did and agreed with himself. See, God the Son and God the Father produced a deal that lasts forever and whose promise is sure. Turn to Hebrews 9, verse 15. <clears throat> Hebrews 9, verse 15. Following upon the discussion of Jesus being better, the writer quotes a ton of Old Testament scripture. Then he talks about the old covenant and he shows how Jesus is superior. And he concludes in Hebrews 9.15 this. And for this cause, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, the New Covenant, that by means of death and for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Isn't that awesome? See, the deal that Jesus and the Father worked out together was a promise a promise that lasted forever and that couldn't fail because it not dependent upon us. Isn't that good news? So in light of this, you need to know something because we're going to get right to it in chapter 21. We're going to see some really funky laws when we go through the next 50 or so chapters of the Bible. 
Laws that seem to contradict God's character or the way that he originally established things. Remember, though, God is brokering a deal, a covenant with imperfect man in the old covenant. And because of mankind's hard heart, he's going to permit some things. Slavery, divorce, revenge killing. You know, even though the Bible says he hates those things, he's going to permit those things. And yet, even in those permissions, he gives uh, provisions to curb the abuse of these practices that he hates. And when examining these laws, we're going to see his true heart in that. Now, because of this, we don't live by those laws as Christians. One of the top five questions I get as a pastor is, how do we know which part of the Old Testament laws to keep? Why are tattoos okay, but is homosexuality wrong? Why is pork okay now, but theft isn't, isn't okay? Why do we decry slavery, but still forbid idolatry? Well, when we look at God's law in the Old Testament, we're going to see it's divided into three parts. The moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. God's moral laws never change. Never but civil and ceremonial law only applied to Israel and the new covenant and the old covenant. And we're going to talk about all those things as we go all the way from Exodus to Deuteronomy. So keep that in mind. You know, somebody comes to you and says, you're not allowed to eat pork. You're going to be able to explain by the time we get through Deuteronomy and say, no, that was part of the civil and ceremonial laws of Israel. Those are not part of God's moral laws. There's nothing inherently evil about pork. My wife, when, when we were dating, she liked pigs. And so I would get her all sorts of little pig, you know, things and whatever, you know, and, and that was just something she liked. She had this little tiny, you know, keychain and it had, you know, a little piglet on it. There's nothing evil about pigs. The demons are not in pigs, even though Jesus sent them into pigs. They're not inherently in there, okay? I like me some pork, and I imagine probably Paul probably did too later on when he realized he could eat it. Understand that. We're going to understand those things. And we're also going to understand, well, why is theft still wrong? Why is idolatry still wrong? Why is sexual morality still wrong? We're going to learn that too, as we'll see it's part of God's moral law, which never changes because it was confirmed in the New Testament as well. So, in light of that, read the next few chapters of Exodus this week. We are going to start moving quicker. I don't want to dwell on all the various reasons why if you knock your servant's tooth out, you know, you have to let him go free, all right? We're going to go through and we're going to read them and we're going to get to the general principle of what God's trying to teach here to the people, how he's trying to curb the, you know, the things that they were imperfectly doing and their hard hearts, they wouldn't change completely. And then we're going to explain God's true heart, you know, how it's seen there. And then we'll see how Jesus could confirms his true heart in the New Testament. And so as you are reading through this and reading ahead, I want to encourage you, always keep this in mind whenever you read. How does what I'm reading now point to Jesus in some way? Because that's going to be our goal as we study the Old Covenant. Amen? All right. Well, why don't we all stand and join me in prayer as the worship team comes forward to close us out. Lord, we do thank you that you've given us better promises, Lord. Better, a better deal because you're a better mediator. You're a better high priest. You're, the sh you're not the shadow, you're the substance, Lord. And we can know you now because the way is made clear. So Lord, we pray that as we continue our journey through Exodus, that you would help us to keep these truths in mind, that when we find baffling laws that seem to contradict your revealed will or your revealed character, that we would understand that you were dealing with imperfect man. You were making provisions to curb the hardness of their hearts to protect those who were oftentimes hurt by the hardness of men's hearts. And then that we would see your true heart as we look at the words of Jesus in the New Testament, where he said unto them, you have heard it said in old time, hey, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy. 
Do good to those who despitefully use you. Pray for those, you know, who persecute you. Lord, help us to do that, that we might be your children. For Lord, your word says that you love everybody. So Lord, give us courage. Help us to speak the truth in love, particularly as we interact with folks this week, folks that might even criticize you or criticize our faith. Help us not to take offense at that, Lord, knowing that, <laughs> Lord, you're big enough to handle it, so we should walk in it as well. And, and let the pain, let the, let the venting come our way. And when they see that we love them in spite of how they might ridicule us and our faith, that they would see something different in us, that they would see you, Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. Jesus' finished work on the cross has paved a way for us to come to God. We don't need to go through a ritual or a priest. There is nothing that stands between us and God. We don't deserve this opportunity, but it has been freely given to us on the basis of God's own goodness. Because of Jesus, we can boldly enter God's throne where we can find grace. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, do not be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.